Our second reading is from the letter of 1 John, chapters 2 and 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The word of the Lord. It's a basic reality that we need our moms. Not only do we need our moms, we need our dads. Actually, we're dependent biologically on both of them to get here, right? But it's not just for the biological reasons, the physical reasons that we need our mom and dad. There's also, of course, the, the development, the, the way that we have a self-understanding and the role that parents play in that. I was reading a couple of articles that were trying to distill academic studies talking about the role that parents play in the development of kids. One out of Ohio State was talking about how a stable family was so important. And another one was talking, another study out of Iowa, about the University of Iowa, about the, the nurturing role that parents play in the development of kids. That that stability and that nurturing role of a mom or a dad or of both of them creates the place for mental and emotional development to grow into maturity. But the Bible makes something else clear. It takes it a step further. It says as much as we need our mom or our dad for biological or economic or mental or emotional development, we need God all the more. The New Testament uses the language of God as our parent, and it's building on the experience and understanding of the families that we've all come from in some way. In the New Testament, one of the, the driving metaphors for being a Christian is being in the family or household of God. And you see this as one of the main themes in 1 John, which is a small letter that we're looking at last week, this week, and next week. In 1 John, one of the main themes is that we are children of God. And I love the way that John talks about it in this letter because he uses both male and female understanding. He talks about God as our father, and yet we are also born of God. That God is our true parent, the one that we need to bring us up. The aim that John has in using this language of being children of God is to assure us. Essentially, he's saying, Hey guys, don't forget this. You're a child of God. This is incredibly important. This makes all the difference. We see this in the middle of our passage today. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says it two different times, and he's trying to underscore how important it is by his repetition. He writes to us, 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then he goes on in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. We are already, we are now God's children. And something that's not entirely clear just in our verses, but in reading all of 1 John, is this. There's a big difference between being a child of God and trying to become a child of God. Most of us have an understanding of Christianity that is that we have to try to become children of God. We have to do something. We have to live into it. And we see this in some ways in the way that we talk to each other about faith. Look, I'm a minister, and so I might grab you on the side and say, hey, how's everything going spiritually for you? And you know the sort of que- the, that sort of question usually elicits this sort of answer. It's an answer of what I'm doing or not doing or trying to do. Hey, how's your faith? How's everything going? Oh, I've been reading this great book. Or, uh, yeah, I've, I'm sorry, I haven't been in church in several weeks. I, you know, I got I to gotta try better. So think about how we answer how you're doing in your faith or how is your faith. We answer it with an answer of doing or trying. My experience is this. To the extent that my Christian faith is about trying or doing, I am more guilty, more self-righteous, and more insecure. Much of my early stages in Christian faith was built on trying to be a better Christian. And here's what I found. I found myself constantly beaten down by my struggle with my sinfulness, feeling guilty again and again that I'd struggled and fallen in that same area. Or I felt self-righteous because I had certain measures that I had attained to and I knew the rest of you weren't nearly as strong a Christian as I am. Or on a given day, I was deeply insecure. Had I actually done enough for God to accept me today? I even remember being a a young adolescent wondering if I died today, would I go to heaven? Because, I mean, do you know what I just did? Deeply insecure, guilty, or self-righteous. You know, so often Yoda is very close but falls just short. In The Empire Strikes Back, he has one line that is one of these brilliant Zen koans that you think, oh, that's brilliant. But if you really look at it, he's falling short. Yoda is the master Jedi training Luke. And they're, they're in this swampy area, and Luke is supposed to use the Jedi force to raise an X-wing fighter, uh, an entire jet. And, and Luke says, it's too big, I can't do it. And, and Yoda says, yes, you can. And Luke says, all right, I'll give it a try. And then Yoda has wisdom. He says, no, try not. Do Or do not. There is no try. And you hear that and think, wow, that's profound. (laughs) But both Luke and Yoda are way off when it comes to the gospel. You see, with Jesus, it's not try or do. The gospel is good news of who you are in Christ. It's a declaration of what God has done for you. It's a promise of who you now are in Christ. It's not a you must do or you must try. It is, it is done. That is what John is trying to get at when he says you are now 
children of God. It is done. Grasping this, grasping what it means to be stable and secure as a child of God is integral to gospel-driven self-understanding and gospel-driven living. And so you could ask the question, if I am therefore a child of God and what I do and don't do doesn't affect that, can I do whatever I want? Can I do nothing? I think what John says, if you read the whole letter, is as children of God, we are meant to live out our identity as God's children. Living as a child of God involves revealing who we are, reflecting whose we are, and enjoying the relationship with God as our Father. Why might we live as children of God if we're already fixed and stable as children of God? Well, for one reason is because it reveals who we are. We see this in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 2. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him. So you cling to Christ. That sounds like doing something. He goes on in verse 29 to say that you must practice righteousness. Practicing righteousness reveals that you have been born of him. You see, throughout 1 John, he talks about what it is to live out your identity as a child of God. And the way that it's described is revealing the nature of your faith. And so he says in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, which we didn't read, a child of God practices righteousness and does not practice sin. In other words, your lifestyle and the direction of your life is towards following God and turning from sin. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, children of God, true children of God, love one another. So in 1 John, our love and obedience, our walking in the ways of God, reveal that we really are children of God. Often we do this in reverse. So think about it this way. A trout doesn't swim in order to become a fish. Rather, because it is a fish, the trout swims. Very often we do it the other way around. We act as if I've got to swim hard enough so I can become a fish. I've got to be good enough to be accepted. You are, John says, a child of God. Therefore, live that way. In other words, I don't, I don't go to the Lord in prayer. I don't open up the Bible and read it and meditate on it. I don't come to worship with you guys. I, I don't try to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit like love and joy and patience. I don't try to develop generosity and humility. I don't turn from jealousy and anger and sexual immorality in order to be accepted. I live for God because I am his child. We swim because we are fish. The direction and desires of our life, the desires of our heart and the direction of our life reveals who we are. A life following God reveals a child of God. We also walk in the ways of God in order to reflect whose we are, 
that we are God's children. God's children reflect him to the world around them. You know, I think often we, we lack the ability to grasp the significance of being a child of God or family language the way it's used in the Bible because we don't have the same family structures that they had in the ancient Near East. We talk about this again and again, but I think it's important to go back to it. We undervalue extended family, and we no longer live in patriarchal cultures. And I don't want to necessarily go back to a patriarchal culture, but you have to grasp and understand what was going on back then in order to understand when God says through the scriptures, we are children of God, what is being gotten at there. So in that ancient world, you lived in an extended family that had a head of household, a patriarch. It was almost like a a good pyramid system or something. And your identity, first of all, was found in the head of household. And you saw this, or you see this even in the Bible, in the way that somebody's name was given. So Simon Peter was called what? Simon, son of John. He was known by his father. Your identity was tied to your clan and your head of household. And it wasn't just your identity, it was your status in the community. If you were in a small village, it was far better to be the son of the local rabbi than the son of the local tax collector. Your status and identity in the community depended upon who your father was, what family you came from. Whose son or daughter you were affected everything. Your economic outlook, your honor in the community, the way you were expected to live. So consider when John or the rest of the Bible talks about being a child of God. If you had grown up as a slave, the son of slaves, if you were a daughter who was an orphan and didn't know your parents, if you were of a family of known sinners, to come to faith in Christ and to say, to be called, to be told that you are now a child of God transformed everything for you. It opened up a whole world of self-understanding and finding your identity in God that was not possible in the culture of that day. It meant that the slave was now in God's eyes as high as the son of the king in the community. There's also the implication that in that culture, you were meant to and expected to carry on the family name, to honor the family and the father that you came from. Now, again, this is hard for us to grab hold of, which is why I always go back to one of my favorite movies, The Godfather. You see, in The Godfather, Vito Corleone, the Don, played by Marlon Brando, is the head of the Corleone family. Not that we want to model ourselves off of the Corleone family, but just bear with me here. Don Corleone is the head of the family. His sons carry out the business of the family on behalf of the father. Everyone who is associated with them, all the cousins and nephews and nieces and everyone tied to the family, anyone who marries into the family, anyone who's a business associate of the family is meant to carry on the business of Don Corleone. And in fact, they're meant to carry on the traditions and the character of the head of household. Don Corleone is known as a loyal man, as a, as a man of his word and of his promise and a man of honor, which meant his sons and everyone associated with the family was supposed to carry out those character traits. You see, in the ancient Near East, if your head of household was a particularly generous man, 
you were meant to go around being generous. If he was particularly kind to the poor, you too were meant to be kind to the poor. If he was particularly hardworking, when you were hardworking, you brought honor to him and to the family name. You see this in the BBC's Downton Abbey as well. There's, there's the Earl of Grantham, and they're trying to figure out how everyone growing up in this new age is meant to reflect their position as royalty. And because they were royalty, it meant that they had to live differently. A scandal with one person was a scandal on the whole family. Acting honorably reflected on the entire household. So think about how this plays out if we are of the family of God. Why do we live Christianly? Why do we love others? Why do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? Why do we obey God and turn from sin? Because our head of household, our Godfather, is that way. And we are called to reflect him to the world around us. You see this in the New Testament in the language of what you put on and take off. Sometimes the way of walking in obedience and turning from sin is put on faith, righteousness, goodness, and take off sinfulness. Why do they use that language of put on, take off? Because they understood that in that culture, what you wore reflected who you were. If you were royalty, you wore princely robes. If you were a beggar, you wore beggar's robes. The clan that you were from was clear by the clothing that you wore. So often in the New Testament, the call to walk in godliness is the call to wear the right clothes. It's not put on princely robes so that you'll become a prince. It's you are a prince. You are a princess. Why are you wearing beggar's clothes? Why are you wearing the shameful clothing of a prostitute? You are a princess, a daughter of the king. Put on your princess robes. We reflect whose we are by the life we live. How we live reveals that we are children of God. It reveals who our Father is. And it's lastly an opportunity to enjoy God fully. You know, we experience God as our Father in a relationship with Him. And we have to remember, we've said this a couple times already this morning, we don't try to walk in goodness or avoid sin or seek to follow God in order to become children of God. It's not like becoming a doctor. You got to go to school, you got to work hard, do well in your residency, and then you become a doctor. Or getting into university, you've got you've to have the right grades, a good application, a good you know, curriculum that you've fulfilled in, in high school in order to get into college. We don't walk in goodness and righteousness in order to be able to just get in. Rather, we walk in these ways in order to be able to enjoy the fullness to enjoy the fullness of our relationship with God. This is something that is is easily portrayed in Jesus' prodigal son story. That son, the younger son, goes off on his own. And in 
in his own living apart from the Father, he squanders everything and is destitute and starving. And he realizes how much he had when he was with the Father. That living in the Father's ways, following the Father's rules, reflecting the Father, is a way of actually enjoying the fullness of that relationship with him. He returns humble, saying, I just want to be with you. Make me even as a slave. Recognizing that living in the Father's household, walking in his ways, is a way to enjoy the fullness of that relationship with God. As children of God, we can enjoy that love and that relationship just as we have with a loving mom or dad. We can enjoy that with God. One of the challenges, though, with this children of God language, and especially if you read all of 1 John, is that not everyone is a child of God. Now, let me put a caveat on that. God loves everyone. God loves everyone. He desires everyone to know him as, his fa- as their father. But not everyone, as John talks about, has reason to be secure in their identity or confidence in the future when they stand before God. Not everyone is able to enjoy that relationship with God. You see, John makes a, a categorization. He says there are children of God and there are children of the world. And when he uses that word world, when John, either the gospel writer in 1 John says you're of the world, it basically means life apart from God. To be of the world is to say, I'm going to go my own way and not live submitted to or recognizing you as my God. In other words, I will be the decider of the direction of my life. I don't need you. But John, through Jesus, in John chapter 3, tells us we must be children of God. In order to be children of God, what do we need to do? Well, it's not try harder, do more, work better, be more holy. The language that's used is birth language. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who was a religious guy, very good, morally upstanding, knew all of the rules and followed them. Jesus says, even you must be born again if you're to enter the kingdom of God. All of us need to be born again spiritually. So how do you do it? How does spiritual birth happen? How do we become children of God? Well, think about some of what goes along with the language of being born of God. We are born because God is the actor. You know, all of us were born not of our own choice. (laughs) We didn't choose our parents. We needed them to conceive us. We needed parents or somebody in their place to keep us alive. The same is true when it comes to spiritual rebirth. We need God's initiation in our hearts. The spirit of God drawing us and starting to give life to us. Starting to draw us in. And if any of you have come to faith in Christ, you will look back and you will see time and time again when God was drawing you further and further on towards him. Giving you that next little bit of an inkling of who he is. And ultimately we need God to do it, to give birth to life in him. 
It's God's initiating. It's God acting. It's God who gives birth to us, spiritually speaking. Something else we see if we reflect on this idea of being born again or born of God is that birth comes through a death. You know that in every birth, there's the sacrifice of the mother. Think about it. The mother is giving of her food, of her blood, of her nutrients. Her body is torn up by the baby. And even in times past and around the globe, many women died in childbirth. It was not uncommon and still is not. The life of the mother literally poured out to give life to the baby. But even that greatest gift and sacrifice is a reflection, a pointing to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, we have life, new birth, because of his death, because of his sacrifice, because of his death on the cross, we are able to be born again. How do we take hold of this? We take hold of this through faith. John says you must be born again. And then he goes on through Jesus to say how it happens. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Later on, we're going to be doing baptisms, and in those baptisms, you're going to see the families up here declaring their faith. And in the declaration of their faith, they're going to renounce and affirm something. They're going to renounce and turn from Satan, sin, the world, and evil. And they're going to affirm in the baptismal covenant, I do, I believe, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. In 1 John 5, which we didn't read today, John talks about how we receive our birth as children of God. And he says, you must believe Jesus is the Christ. You must believe Jesus is the Son of God. It's through faith that we are born anew. You become a child of God when you accept what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And then we experience the fullness, potentially, of what God has done for us. In verse 1 of chapter 3, John wants us to focus on the nature of God's love for us. He says, See, see what love the Father has given to us, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You see, we're meant to see God as our father. This is not the the distant clockmaker of the 18th century theists. This is not the angry judge of many world religions. This is not the impersonal force of Buddhism or Yoda's force. This is, as J.I. Packer said, the most profound introduction to God in the New Testament. It's the introduction that God is also our father, a loving father. And we can sort of get that, those of us who have children, what it is to love a child. You're willing to sacrifice for them. You desperately want the best for them. You ache for them. If you have lost children, you know that sort of ache that tears you apart because you desperately want them there. 
That love, that deep love for your kids is a reflection of God the Father's love for us. And this tells us that if some of us in this room have had bad parents or lost parents prematurely or were orphans and never knew our parents, never got to experience this sort of love, that there is a love deeper than the love your mom and dad can have for you. Because all of us are made for something far deeper. It is that we are made for relationship with God. We are made to experience God's love. We need his love more than anything else. And we can experience his love for us. His healing, his drawing, his nurturing, his strengthening in daily life. If you've never experienced this, this is some of what it looks like. You can experience the love of God in those unexpected joys. Like when a song or piece of music comes on that that lights your heart. Or when the season changes and it's now your favorite season. Or when you're spending a long evening with an old friend and you reflect back on it and think, thank you God for the joy and pleasure of this life. That is God's love for me. We experience the love of the Father when we're dealing with deep pain and sacrifice and loss. And we find comfort and hope in a God who walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. We experience the love of the Father when we finally realize that we've been forgiven, that everything, everything, everything we've ever done has been washed clean, and we are undone by that. He loves us that much. It's all forgiven. Have you experienced God's love this way? I love and I want to finish on this one little phrase that John uses here. At the very beginning of, of verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This, this is a loud statement which is sort of missed in the English. It's, hey guys, are you aware how great God is? He's exuberant. He's overflowing. He's like a little kid who's come back from the carnival and is trying to spill out everything that he tasted and experienced. And the words sort of fumble on each other. The cotton candy and, and the mini roller coaster and then my friends and there were these slides and, and, and the words just boil out of a little kid. He's exuberant with joy. Paul does this time and again when Paul is either worshiping God in one of his writings or he's praying in one of his writings. In one of my favorite passages in the Bible, we see one of Paul's run-on exuberant passages that's reflecting a a parallel, honestly, to what we have here in verse 1. It's in Ephesians 3, and it's a prayer that Paul has for his disciples, for the believers in Ephesus. And he prays this. He prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches, you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and then he loses his place, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's overwhelmed and can't find the words to describe as he's reflecting on the love of God. He's like, you know the universe and how big it is? God's love is bigger. It's deeper and wider and stronger. The closest reflection I've seen is in like a 40 or 50 or 60 year marriage. And you think about how in a long and good marriage, you see the depth of love going deeper and deeper. It starts off as infatuation. Oh, she's pretty. Oh, I like his smile. And then it moves to personality. He makes me laugh. I like her humility. 
And then from personality, it moves into shared dreams. And then these two people get married and become best friends, teammates, vying for each other. And then years down the line, after suffering together and sacrificing for each other and caring for each other when the other person couldn't give anything back, you see a 50 or 60 year marriage that has deeper and deeper and deeper love. I know that some of you have experienced the end of a person's love. You've had them walk out on you. With God, there is no end. It's far deeper than a 60-year marriage. It is immeasurable, even in eternity. And that's why I come back again and again to God, that I am constantly amazed at the depth of his love. I go back again and again to every place that I can taste God because I desire to see the fullness, what kind of love there is for me. Look, God the Father wants us to know and experience the depth of his love for us. He wants us to be assured in our identity in him, hopeful for eternity with him. And he wants us, he wants us to enjoy life as his sons and daughters, children of the true king. Let's pray. God, our Father, I pray that we might be able to experience and taste the depth of your love for us. How high and wide and deep and long is the love of God for us whose faith is in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. Amen.
Bring many sons to God.